Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Changed more than people realize, but we'll talk about that when we come back. Good day wherever you are listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, July 30th, 2010. This week, episode 175 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, a Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's always fun to work with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. And we also have the intrepid environmental Annie Koalecki at the controls. Good afternoon. Hello, Annie. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with restoration pioneer Lee Pemberton. We'll have our halftime, IE Connections, What's News with Executive Director Glenn Fellman and IE Connections uh, Editor. And we'll also have the roundup with Dr. Dietrich Wild joining us at the end of the show. We've been updating and adding that blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we start, let's thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, to contact the show, you can just go to that uh, iaqradio.com website, follow the link that says go to the show or get the show from iTunes. You can also call us at 724-444-7444. They will ask for our show ID. It is 1547. Uh, You can also listen to the shows after um, Fridays on Saturday morning. We have a link directly to the show on our iaqradio.com website. Just click on and it starts to play. Don't forget we also have those ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits. Just email me and request a quiz. Our emails are on the webpage. Mine is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website, For the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. 
Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for this week's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can just text your answer right in. Congratulations. <laughs> to Ernie Storr, Injecta Dry Systems in Linwood, Washington, for answering last week's microband trivia question by correctly identifying Melinda Ballard as the farmer's insurance policy holder who received a $32 million jury award in Travis County, Texas over water leak claims in her home. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, July 30th, 2010. Care label symbols are required by law for your information to help you make informed garment and furniture purchase decisions. Which federal government agency requires manufacturers to attach a permanent label on textiles that provides directions for their care? Hmm. Okay, over good, to you, Joe. Good one, Cliff. All right, today's guest is Mr. Lee Pemberton. He's a nationally recognized consultant, speaker, and pioneer on business, technical, and marketing topics that concern the cleaning and restoration industries. Mr. Pemberton has been involved in professional certification, as few others can be involved. He is a founding shareholder, past president, and member of the Board of Directors for the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. In addition, Lee, along with his son Jim, own and operate one of the industry's oldest specialized cleaning supply stores, serving the needs of cleaning professionals across the country. Their Cleaning and Restoration Learning Center is the educational and training division of the Pembertons. It was founded to serve the business, technical, and professional development needs of cleaning and restoration companies and their employees. We are delighted to welcome a familiar face at many industry trade events and an industry pioneer, Lee Pemberton. I think we have some intro music. Okay, that's our pioneer music, Lee. Uh, Welcome, Lee. Do we have you on the line? You do. Great. And hi, Joe, and hi, Cliff. Hey, Lee, it's, it's good to have you here. Uh, we're really excited about the interview. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Well, let's go back in history. You know, what year did you enter the dry cleaning industry? Well, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of a story here. It'll give you a little background on, on most things about me. It was the late 50s. Uh, I was a very young family man. found myself working in a steel mill here in western PA and then during the constant layoffs at that time. And during the layoff periods, I would supplement my unemployment with uh, various sales jobs in the city. And one day, I happened upon uh, an opportunity to intern as a spotting specialist in a local one-hour dry cleaning plant, so I took it. <laughs> in my efforts to learn these skills, I found it not only interesting, but quite challenging and a much more comprehensive job than I'd expected. And while developing these skills, 
I became involved in a process of learning all about fabrics, finishes, uh, many types of construction, but not only in a finished garment, as I expected, but in window coverings, wall decor, and even fine upholstery coverings. So the opportunity of learning the science of uh, cleaning, as I learned the spotting skills, uh, has opened many doors for me in uh, later occurring events, and uh, which, of course, this industry was in its absolute infancy in those days. And what I didn't realize was that the skills I developed during that period would serve me well even till this day. For instance, I had to learn small business management skills in that on-the-job environment, and I had the fortune to have a patient and solid guidance I also uh, quickly learned that there was no such position as a skilled spotting specialist. It turned out that skilled spotting specialist was a fancy name for the guy that had all the responsibilities of running the business. And when I say all, I mean all. That included cleaning the restrooms. Well, the owner first went away for two weeks, and he left me in charge after about three or four months. Oh, I was honored. I felt that, wow. I was going to be okay. Then I found out I had to make all the repairs, inspect all the finished work, handle employee problems. And mind you, all the employees except me were women, and I was that kid to them. (laughs) I also had to wait on the counter when more than one customer came in. Wow, was that an education for me. Well, when he came back, he said, you know, you did pretty good. Well, now there's a few more things uh, you'll need to know before I go to Florida for the winter next month. Well, long story short, by 1961, I was running the operation, and he blessed me with another smaller plant on the other side of town and a coin-operated laundry to operate while he went to Florida and ran his big dry-cleaning operation there. But my baptism of fire continued. Now, as I continue this brief story, keep in mind, I was very unsophisticated. I was hardworking with a wife and three kids at this point in my life. My economic savvy, my knowledge of regional and national trends, as well as any investment skills, at that time in my life would be very highly suspect in today's world. So, moving along, and by 1963, unfortunately, I had proudly become the owner of that small dry cleaning business. And that's a decision I later came to regret on, on some levels deeply. I soon learned that while managers do work long hours, as I had learned, owners never quit working. And I soon learned the value of knowing all the jobs in a small service business. Turns out when one of the pressers didn't show up because of too much partying after payday, I was the backup presser, so my lead presser called a silk finisher would feel like we were a team, and she wasn't stuck with all the work. And then when the seamstress didn't show up, you can guess who had to learn to make repairs and do simple hem jobs in a big hurry. And I thought that was tough. I had no clue what tough really was until I learned that a new mall was being constructed just outside of town. And then, in the space of only two years after I bought that business, Sears and Penny's were gone. Now, these were each located within two blocks on either side of my store, and I experienced a drastic drop in customers, both the employees of these stores and the ones that patronized them. Well, and by 1967, downtown McKeesport was already undergoing massive redevelopment. Now, pretty obvious that 
that didn't just happen that quick. That was underway when I blindly made my, my purchase. But, you know, since I had no trusted resource to consult, I found myself with a Main Street retail rent that I couldn't pay, as well as a banknote for the business I purchased that I couldn't pay. Well, my options were to declare bankruptcy or find new sources of revenue. Well, I was too stubborn or stupid to pursue bankruptcy because I was a real negative in the 50s and in the 60s. So I began to look into income-producing potentials that I might have been overlooking. And I'd already become pretty proficient at uh, drapery cleaning along with pickup and delivery, so I added and actively solicited a take-down-and-rehang service to see if anything would happen, and boy, did it. I found that there was an expanded market existed on the part of pickup and delivery. I had already developed my local Jewish business clientele that, who really wanted someone they could trust to come into their homes and provide these additional services. So I was thrilled, but then I found out from my clientele they wanted more services that I wasn't ready to provide. Turned out they needed help with wall washing and heavy cleaning of kitchens and bathrooms, very much especially before the spring Passover season. That was a keen want on their side. Well, that didn't require much of an investment on mo- on money, but a lot of physical, obviously. But I immediately added it, watched it grow rapidly, and then almost too rapidly. Plus, I now found they also wanted me to oversee the cleaning of the carpets and the upholstery. I couldn't do it. They wanted somebody they would trust while the old rug scrubbers came in to uh, really mess up the place. Then, I, of course, I had to make it look good before they got back home. Well, and of course... Another life-changing uh, decision for me was to soon come about. That sets the scene for when I got started, Cliff. Okay. You know, when you decided to enter the um, on-location cleaning business, um, were you an independent or were you a franchisee? Well, <laughs> it, it, I've already spoken candidly about my uh, my. Um, management skills that uh, let me stray in the purchase. So let's say, put it this way, I started as an independent, I screwed up, I bought a franchise, I learned an enormous amount, then I wound up becoming an independent again. So there's a little bit of an interesting story that goes with that. And uh, the on-location drapery cleaning came in as I came back to, uh, well, as I started while I was by service master franchisee. But I was aware of service master Duraclean Von Schroeder as resources when I was looking for some way to add these additional services. But I tell you, they weren't cheap. And I had nowhere to turn for guidance. If the dry cleaning industry couldn't give me any help. I asked my suppliers, uh, as we do these days, and they didn't know a thing. So believe it or not, I did a really brilliant thing. I made an investment in a carpet cleaning kit advertised in Popular Mechanics magazine. Hmm. How's that? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gave me a guidebook, told me how to modify a twin brush home carpet scrubber into a dry phone carpet cleaner that I could use in my little carpet cleaning business. So I thought, well, I, maybe I can get started. Then I can do better. Well, I did it. And I got pretty good results when I did my first dozen or so jobs, then catastrophe. I cleaned a plush silver acrylic carpet 
that was trash to say the least. But what did I know? It was had black walkways. It was black in front of every register. Well, big shot that I was. I felt I knew how to goose up the cleaning power of that mild shampoo. I just added trisodium phosphate to the shampoo, and I scrubbed it into the black area using a scrub brush on a handle that I dipped in a bucket and, and scrubbed it over. Well, the black disappeared like magic. Well, when I got done, the carpet was wetter than usual, but it looked really great. The customer was ecstatic until the next day. My phone started ringing as soon as I opened the doors of, at, of my dry cleaning shop at 7 a.m. in the morning. Well, long story short, you've never seen such a magnificent case of browning in your life. And I had absolutely no idea what to do. Well, in desperation, I called our Pittsburgh area's top in-plant area rug operator, who at the time was the current president, at that time the current president of the National Association of Rug Cleaners, uh, the NIRC, I believe it was called. So I asked him if I disengaged that carpet and brought it in, would he correct it for me? And he said, in essence, pay for it, uh, blank, blank, blank. And considered a lesson to stay in your own business instead of trying to take ours. Well, I bought it, and I handled the claim quickly and made the customer happy because she was a dry cleaning customer. And I kept the rug to remind me of my stupidity. Well, I then bit the bullet, and I purchased the Service Master franchise from a carriage trade dry cleaner here in Pittsburgh, who also fortunately took me under his wing since we were both dry cleaners. And it happened to be Oswald Werner in Suns Club. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I learned was how to completely correct the severe browning of the silver acrylic rug. That single process burned into my brain the need for training and knowledge and the need for a trusted resource to call when you need help. That arrogant NIRC giant changed my life. I learned a great deal from the franchise. But I finally determined later that the return to the the return I got for the fee after I got all the knowledge didn't work for me anymore. So I became an independent and have been very independent until this day. Sure. During these you know early days and even up up until today, I'm just curious um, what people in the industry made the biggest impressions on you um, and and why. Well, I tell you. That's a question that might have been difficult for me to answer a little earlier in my career, but it's crystal clear to me now. There are four men top the list of peers who had an enormous influence on me. Now, if I list them one to four, that isn't necessarily an accurate uh, sequence as far as their importance in my life. But each one touched me in, in a way that made a permanent impact and at different times. I'd need an hour just to discuss these men and how they affected me in my life path. So I'm just going to go just rather quickly over it. They all have special traits in common. Two of them, Jim Roden and Cliff Zlotnick, uh, are blessed with brilliant minds that they were able to use for more than the innovative chemistry skills they had. They shared that knowledge with me, and they helped me to simplify it so I could share it through training. Uh, Jim Roden saw me as a skilled communicator, and I had to live up to his expectations, so I had to really work at it. And besides, he was the first one to pay me for doing training. <laughs> so uh, that helped me work hard. Now, Cliff opened my eyes to incredible concepts of deodorization beyond my imagination. And I met him as a very young man who was quite brash, 
And he spoke of his goal, and to say the least, he's over-delivered as far as that goes. Now, I would have never succeeded in distribution without the general guidance of Ken Hines, and he's the uh, the founder of uh, Sunbelt USA, uh, a longtime distribution business in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And I didn't even realize what he was doing for me until many years later. I'll mention that maybe later in our discussion. Finally, Ed York, a man everyone loved to hate. He was the man who, who dreamed of concepts that ticked everyone off. But Ed was always very considerate of me, taught me the, and the big thing he taught me was the financial value of combining training and distribution, which, as you know, is uh, now the accepted norm in this industry. And by the way, Ed was also the developer of the concept of the IICRC along with countless other still-functioning concepts today. So well, that's about it. Um, what prompted you to get involved with regional trade associations, and, and what really were the issues um, that regional trade associations were concerned about when you first got involved? If you go back to the my conversation just previously, it was my own experiences that when I needed help and needed knowledge, I couldn't find it. That was a driving force. That has stayed with me from the time that I was, what, around 30 or so, until today it's never quit burning. The reality that cleaning professionals had nowhere to turn was devastating as far as I was concerned. And at that time, when, even when I talked to a cleaning professional, everyone mistrusted everyone else. They were, they were afraid because of the lack of knowledge of their industry and because of the lack of knowledge of their competitors. They wouldn't even talk to them. And there were no distributors that we could pick up a phone and call for help. So that is what drove me. I just felt that we had to do something. And so at that time, trade associations became the resource to talk to one another and to bring in training or develop training. And from there, I, you, you kind of started talking about that leading you to being one of the earliest distributors in, in, the, in the industry, I guess. Can you tell us a little bit more about you know, how, how you came about going into the distribution business? <laughs> well, that, that's a, that is a, an interesting story. And sometimes I, I have to think, uh, about what are the things that made me do it. But I'll tell you what, it, it really comes down to several factors. Number one, there weren't any distributors available anywhere within several states of here. They were just basically sales reps for the new truck mount technology. And most manufacturers in those days simply were forced to sell direct. Well, that's where Jim Roden really uh, had a, a major influence because, of course, as the founder of Pro Chem at that time, he was on the road with his new truck, truck mount technology, and he would show up to show it. And then because I liked the things that he told me and he shared with me, uh, I would buy uh, enough materials so I wouldn't have to pay the shipping from Arizona. Well, he finally convinced me that he should leave in fact, he wanted to ship, and he did ship large quantities that I had room in an extra warehouse. 
so that I could supply the companies that were coming in for training, and I was showing them how to use these products, and then they could buy them. So I wasn't officially a distributor at that time, but uh, I was sure selling a lot of ProChem products, and that then grew by customer demand. And in those days, I was seen all throughout the East as professional chemicals. So as it began to grow, there again, this is where Ken Hines comes into the picture, because he was the fellow that taught me very early uh, something that was incredibly important. I went down to Raleigh to ask him about some advice on purchasing a software business management program he had. And the advice he gave me in his general southern draw was, Lee, if you want to succeed as a supplier to this new industry, you've got to start selling multiple lines. You can't just sell ProChem. Well, that was a tough one because all the manufacturers wanted exclusivity, but he said, Lee, they want it. He said, but that's not your problem. The customers want choices. And if they won't give it to you, go to someone else. Well, I thought that over, and I made one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. I decided I was going to give my customers what they wanted and try to sell them what I had in stock. And when I told Jim Roden that, that was the most powerful, loudest silence I've ever heard in my life. And it took him a weekend to think that over because he couldn't speak. But you know... He called me back. This is a major of Jim Roden. He called me back and he said, you know what? You are right. He said, I just hope that you make some choices I can live with. Well, I guess I did because we went on and his company grew and mine grew. But I told him, I said, i got to train my customers. I have to recommend what I think is best, but I really have to help them get what they want. And they wanted choices. And it turned out teaching and distribution were perfect partners for this industry, and I was well prepared to provide both. Lee, I, I, let me back up just a minute. I want to make sure I got this right. Now, you were already teaching. Were you teaching for yourself, or were you teaching for somebody else? And, and was I'm just no, curious. What I was doing, I, I had become so impassioned that in the very early days, uh, once, once we got our association going, then other associations would ask if I could just come and talk to them. Well, I, I, I was, I've always been able to structure things together. So I would ask them what they wanted me to talk about and explain. And so I began to put together things. And uh, I put together you know, outlines with what good carpet cleaners should do. And I learned early, since I went up into the New Jersey and New York area where they eat people that like me, uh, I learned that you have to have your ducks in a row, and you better speak like you know what you're talking about, because uh, in those days, the steam guy sat on one side of the room, and they, uh, they, the rug scrubbers on the other side, and there was definite strong animosity between them. I'm curious. I know that... Um you mentioned steam and the rug scrubbers. For those of us that aren't as familiar with the industry, can you tell us a little bit more about why there was that animosity between them and where we are today with respect to those two, I guess, uh, well, techniques? Sure. In the early part of this industry, carpets were cleaned. Well, up until about 1965, most carpets in the home were loose 
carpets. Okay. Then uh, the popcorn nylon, after the Second World War, uh, became more and more uh, affordable. And we, they just made it so it could go on everything. Well, it couldn't be taken. You're not going to pull it loose and take it in plant, though the in-plant guys wanted that. So we developed uh, on-location cleaning. Well, existing technology was shampoo. Service Master fought it like crazy. When I bought my franchise, I had uh, didn't even have a, a brush on the machine. I had a mop disc, which they use for maintenance today. And then I had little samples to show people how steam destroyed the carpet. Well, I wasn't stupid. They took a steam gun and blew that blew the, that half a carpet apart. Well, and that, that was not a lie, they said, <laughs> but it certainly was was fraudulent uh, messages uh, to the to the consumer. But that's the passion there was then. Uh, the the fellows that were shampooing carpets. Now you had the door clean at that time. They cleaned by hand with sponges and and light brushes on their hands and knees. Von Schroeder had their dry foam, and they still do today, and uh, they did, uh, because they, they also had extraction with it, they did a reasonable job, just slow. Service Master was the one that uh, didn't want to switch, but has, and eventually everybody had to switch. And so that's why the steam guys, that was like a new religion, and it was, it, you had all these new people coming in to the industry and the uh, the on-location scrubbers who were party and parcel of the rug-cleaning plants hated it. That was where technology and the old guard were clashing. And this went on for probably a, a, almost a decade, but at least very, very viciously for, I remember the early 70s in Columbus when uh, we saw saw this going on. So, But over in New Jersey... New York, you know, they still have to clean with scrubbers in those giant buildings today. Hmm. Uh, you know, one thing uh, that, that I remember, too, it was this definition of the word steam. And uh, <laughs> you weren't allowed to use it in the yellow page. I mean, the people that were on the opposite side didn't want hot water extraction or steam cleaners to be able to use the word. They said it was fraudulent advertising, and, yeah, you know, there was... Uh, you know, there are issues over whether you were allowed to use it in the yellow pages or not. And uh, I, I was probably Bill Bain, I think, maybe, that kind of uh, came up with a definition that, you know, I think that the industry has probably lived by ever since. Would you agree, Lee? I would think so, yes. And uh, and he remains quite a unique guy. He was, he was a fellow that managed to never have a distributor right. because he had such an efficient training system for his method of cleaning, which uh, it's looked down on by many today, but he proved quite clearly that good cleaning is done by knowledgeable and dedicated men and techni or technicians and owners uh, rather than by high, highly powered equipment. You can take a highly powered piece of equipment with a person lacking in knowledge and you won't do near as good a job as uh, one of these other fellows. Okay, well, we're right up at halftime here. We'll get to, uh, we've got a text question for you after halftime, Lee, but if you can hold on for us for a moment, we're going to thank our sponsors and get a little news update from Glenn Feldman. And we'll be I'll be glad to. Thank you. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information 
through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor, software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products, remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. got a special halftime guest. Lou Grant is here today. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Glenn Feldman. Hello, Glenn. Hello. How are you? Good. All right. Great. What's news, buddy? Well, first of all, thank you for indulging me with that special intro music. Today is a special celebrity edition of What's News on IAQ Radio. All right. Just circumstances are such that there's some celebrities with indoor air quality problems or related maladies who have shown up in the newspapers this week, so we're going to talk about them. The first thing I'd like to do is put to rest a rumor that's been flying around the Internet. If you uh, frequent sites like TMZ.com, you've been reading about this stuff all week. The Los Angeles County Coroner's Office have ruled out reports that mold played a role in the deaths of actress Brittany Murphy and her, second hu- er, me, and her husband, Simon Monjack. Authorities briefly examined whether toxic mold played a part in the deaths of the couple, who died five months apart and quickly ruled it out. Ed Winters, the coroner's assistant, tells a Los Angeles, told the Los Angeles Times there were no indicators that either death was related to mold. Both Mercy and Monjack died of pneumonia combined with anemia. Over the weekend, the clueless star's mother, Sharon, dismissed the, quote, absurd report suggesting mold in her daughter's marital home may have contributed to the untimely deaths of the actress and her husband. Her mother said, it's absurd that this kind of misinformation is being reported by the media. Uh, This stuff was, by the way, you know, on the the front page of the supermarket tabloids all week long. Sharon Murphy, who lived uh, in the home with the couple, says there's no mold in the home. And L.A. coroner Ed Winters said the case is closed and the cause of death was pneumonia. Well, the case may be closed, but there's still many scratching their heads as to how two uh, young, healthy uh, people could die of the same disease in the same house within five months of each other. And maybe there'll be more uh, in the future on that story. But to put the, the rumors to rest, Brittany Murphy, not dead because of mold. 
Okay. <laughs> that is, that right. is a really – it it's tough to figure, you know, why they both died of the same thing. I guess they'll look into it more. I, it is an interesting question. I'm sure it's one that, that the coroner's office has to be investigating. There's got to be some relationship there, but, but who knows. Okay. All right, well, moving on. There's another celebrity uh, in the news here. This one uh, is not dead. This one's in court. Uh, celebrity TV chef Rachel Ray called in the lawyers when she discovered her Southampton, New York home was infested with mold and plagued by water damage. Rachel and her husband John had the home inspected in 2007 before they purchased it for $2.9 million. But it looks like the pros who walked through missed the mold. Now, the couple discovered the water damage when they began to renovate the spread in preparation to sell it. A Rachel Ray Show insider was quoted saying, Rachel and John were considering selling the property when the mold became apparent. It is such a beautiful home, but this could make it impossible for them to sell until the problem is solved. The couple are suing two home inspection companies for $3 million, claiming that neither uh, Amerispec Heritage Home Inspection Services or Joseph Schmidt and Partners Consulting Engineers caught the problem. This one will be interesting to watch in the news because they're trying to prove that uh, you know an inspection four years ago didn't show something that's uh, showed up now and what, what's happened in that home in the last three years in terms of water intrusion and uh, maintenance will definitely come into uh, into factors in this lawsuit. Hmm. So we'll be hearing more about this one. Got one more for you in the news. This one we're going to turn over to the uh, wide world of sports. Uh-huh. Yeah, this one actually is, uh, I know you guys are still reveling in your Pittsburgh uh, Steelers glory over there, but uh, across across the state line in Ohio, former Cleveland Brown center, LeCharles Bentley, is suing the team. He sued them on Thursday over a career-ending staph infection he says he contracted at the team's training facility. Bentley's attorney, Shannon Polk, said the lawsuit seeks at least $25,000 in damages for alleged fraud and negligent misrepresentation. Bentley could seek a lot more money in court. Polk said Bentley nearly died from the infection while he was rehabbing from a knee injury. Quote, they told him the facility was the best, Polk said, but they never told him about a host of unsanitary conditions there, and they never told him about the list of others who contracted staff before he chose to rehab at their facility. Now, Bentley never played a game for the Browns after signing a six-year, $36 million contract as a free agent. He tore his left patella tendon in training camp in 2006, and his career never recovered after the infection. Bentley's repair knee became swollen, and he was diagnosed with a staph infection within weeks of beginning rehab at the facility in July 2006, according to the lawsuit. The lawsuit also says the Browns failed to sanitize equipment. The Browns had at least six players stricken with some sort of staph infection in recent years, including former receiver Joe Jerevicius, who settled a similar lawsuit with the team in June. Terms of that settlement were not disclosed. Browns players Brian Russell, Ben Taylor, Kellen Winslow, and Brandon Edwards have also battled staff. An NFL physician survey of the 32 clubs determined there were 33 MRSA staph infections league-wide between 2006 and 2008. Yeah. Well, it's uh, kind of interesting that uh, the Browns are having these problems. They'll, I guess they're going to court. Uh, we appreciate you bringing these to our attention, Glenn. Always a pleasure having you on. Um, and I like the new music. 
<laughs> I do too. Well, you know, if these if you know these celebrity mold problems keep going on, we could you know we could stick with it. We'll have to see what's going on in a couple of weeks. But uh, I'm not going to be able to join you for the roundup for the show today. And I just wanted to uh, to say that uh, it's great to hear Lee Pemberton to hear somebody who is a real pioneer in the industry and willing to share so much of his experiences. So thank you, Lee, and I hope the listeners enjoy the rest of your show. And thank you, Joe. And thank you, Cliff. All thank right. you very much, thank Glenn. You, Glenn. Okay. We'll bring Dr. Wow on for the uh, roundup here. Let's get back to our interview with Lee. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Sure. Uh, Lee, how did you get involved in fire restoration? Well, that goes back uh, to the days when I had the dry cleaning plant. Uh, that put me right into fire restoration. Early on, the insurance adjusters would stop in the shop, and they'd ask me about cleaning and deodorizing of clothing. And I said, sure. And they'd ask me to go out and pick it up. And then uh, they, they, they always asked me to do these special things. And I said, all right. And I brought it in. Well, then I got on the phone to find out how to do it. That was the one thing in the uh, dry cleaning industry, which was quite mature then. I could call the IFI and found out who in different states did that kind of work. And they told me. And, and I got better and better with each job. Well, then, you know, I don't know if you're really an adjuster. You do one thing good, then they want you to do something else. So they asked if I could look at some smoke damage furnishings. And at that case, it was lampshades, draperies, and upholstery, and I did. And then I got on the phone again, and I called other dry cleaners for guidance. Uh, happened that time that on the upholstery, I talked to Oswald Werner and son, and I, again, I was able to complete the job satisfactorily. Well, the adjusters found out I was washing walls and as a service to my clients, and that did it. Then they begged and pleaded for me to take complete small jobs, and, and I did, and I did them satisfactorily. Then State Farm hooked me up with a contractor out of Greensburg, which is about uh, 20 miles or so from McPeesport, who desperately needed my help, and we clicked. So I found a new and a profitable diversification then that probably couldn't work today. But there was, no, there was little competition in our area in the middle to late 60s and on through the early 70s. So it worked, and, uh, and I did quite well. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Lee, over the years, what, what were some of your biggest business mistakes that you made? I know we don't like to you know, announce these things, but we've got a lot of listeners that are maybe just getting started or you know, partially way, partway through their careers, and we always like to learn from the uh, pioneers' mistakes. Well, I'll tell you, I was fortunate and made my biggest mistakes early. And I discussed briefly about my poor judgment that I used in purchasing the dry cleaning business. Now, mind you, I certainly don't regret all that's happened since then that's molded who and what I am. I have to say I have a lot to be thankful for. But in my direct, honest evaluation, uh, you have to say I was lucky, too. Uh, I'm going to say to our listeners... Never count on luck in business, and don't buy a pig in a poke like I did. Uh, you you have to look into so many things. Even even if a price sounds really sweet, the things that may happen uh, in the early future uh, can devastate you and cost you far more than your investment. Uh, on the other hand, I can honestly say that. Uh, I, I don't know that I'd want to go back and change anything that's happened in my business career, and I, and I do believe 
my best days are still ahead of me. Lee, That's not it. Well, thanks. You know, we know that you work with your son, Jim, intimately within the business. Um, what tips can you give listeners about bringing a son or daughter into their business? Well, I tell you what. To me, it's uh, it's fairly simple. As long as the parent understands, you you have to start them early. You have to build their interest in everything you do, and uh, you have to treat them. Uh, I, I say you have to train really well. Teach them the value of work. You have to teach them that a job well done is payment beyond a cash equivalent. In today's society, that will be difficult to do, but it can be done, and it's very important. You want to also, as a parent, treat them fairly. Not prefer, don't treat them preferentially, but don't baby them either. And I learned this, above all, pay them fairly. Not more than you'd pay anyone else, but not less. Be honest with them. Small business isn't easy, but it has incredible rewards. In this world we live in today, people that have gone through college and spent a fortune in education are just getting out of, uh, of the corporate uh, rat race, and they want to go into small businesses for themselves. And they don't care about working extra hours or long hours because they care about the intangible rewards more than the money. And finally, I would say, just remember, they're, they're not little adults. They're children, and they'll probably not have your stamina, and they will forget. So have patience. But I sure think it's a gift that a small business person today can bring to their children, not just trying to make sure they can make a whole lot of money because money won't buy success or happiness in their lives. You know, Lee, that kind of it ties in a little bit to a text question I have here from a listener and and. Maybe you can answer this for us. Um, you've seen many changes over your decades in the industry. Um, have you seen a lot of changes in the consumers out there? Absolutely. And what, Absolutely. What kind of tips would you give people today for, for dealing with, uh, you know, the modern consumer here to, to help them? Is it still the same basic principles that you've always used, or do you have to change things a little bit? Uh, probably they're much the ones that I have used, but they're not the ones that have been prevalent in our, in our industry. Uh, somewhere along the line uh, in our industry, we made cleaning a commodity, or at least carpet cleaning a commodity. And so we began to market price. Then we forgot about the consumer. They, we thought that's all they wanted was price. Well, if they have nothing else to measure it on, that's all they know to, to ask for. But, you know, you can never cut the price low enough to make up for the, uh, the type of things that go on if you don't have enough money to have the right employees, the right uh, management, and all the right uh, skills that are necessary. Uh, today, you're, they're faced with, with things that uh, they weren't. We, we were faced back with back in, in uh, the old days, I'll call it. Uh, whenever I started selling on-location carpet cleaning, it was unheard of because people just didn't do that. 
So it was educational. And then people didn't trust you then. They wondered, you know, they're going to let you in their house? Well, they did after you, you, you worked with them. I learned that I had to become a part of my community. I had to work with the, the church groups. I worked with, with the garden groups. I, I worked with, with upholsters, and I worked with every kind of a service that was established to get their reliance on me so that they could recommend me, or I could say, call them and see, and you, you could ask. Well, that's, we're back there again. That's where we are today. Uh, trust just doesn't exist. It's been devastated since 2008. And I know that a lot of bad habits have fallen into our industry, and we're going to have to get rid of them. We're going to have to treat the customers like our mother. We're going to have to dress appropriately. We can't go in with dirty cutoffs and clean carpet just because it's hot. We can dress appropriately for the heat, but we can't dress in, in ways that are offensive to our seniors. While people value their long hair and their body art and their facial jewelry, uh, that frightens the seniors. So we have to think about our customers. We have to put them foremost. And I, I always say the easiest thing is, uh, what would your grandma say? And if she'd be happy, well, of course, some grandmas are <laughs> happy with the murderers, so maybe that's not a good one. <laughs> no, actually, I think that's great advice. And, and you kind of led me into another question that we wanted to talk to you about. A, a lot of current people, you know, current consumers are more technologically savvy. And I'm curious, um, are you a techie or have you always been a techie? Well, that's a, I, I, I thought about that question when, uh, when, when uh, you mentioned you might ask that. Here's what I, what I have to say about that. I've always tried to adopt and share technology that makes service company operations easier and better. Now, what I found was that a computer allowed me to be as big as the big guys. And most of our customer base is one to ten employee cleaning service companies. That's a different type of business than the bigger restoration companies, and they have to run differently. But these one to ten employee cleaning companies, they need to come to grips with the fact that they're, they are not a cleaning company first. They're a marketing company first who delivers wanted services. And you see, technology drives good marketing. Computers do that. Cell phones are now becoming the, the mobile computers. And soon, the more discerning of our cleaning services will find out they can't be answering those cell phones on the job. And they'll move to specialized technology such as the Perceptionist Inc., uh, where the phone gets answered properly, and so it doesn't upset your valuable clients while you're in their home. And speaking of technology, Joe, the... Internet today provides higher quality and lower cost advertising and communication methods than we ever had. And that really benefits the little cleaning service companies that use it. Talking about truck mount technology, do you realize we have men that are still cleaning carpet at a much higher age bracket than we could have ever imagined 25 years ago? We have a class going on in our building right now. And one of the fellows that takes a portable into the house and cleans is in his 70s attending this class. Mm -hmm. And finally, 
chemical technology just never ceases to amaze and attract me. So that's how I'm a techie, Jeff. Okay, great. Cliff? Lee, when you look in the crystal ball, you know, what do you see in the future for the cleaning and restoration industry? Well, first of all, I love this industry. I see this industry is becoming better and stronger, but I see a more mature industry. I see it divided into high-tech specialties. In other words, the mold remediators, the indoor air quality specialists, uh, such as uh, we've, we've had so far, like Glenn and, and the fellows like that. Uh, we, but we'll also have color repair specialists. We'll have carpet repair and reinstallation specialists who are, they're like general, they, these are specialists, and they'll accept referrals from the general practitioner cleaners. Then on the other hand, the general practitioner cleaners will be the professional carpet and hard floor cleaners that can provide excellent service in this general practitioner area. They'll be competent then to refer his valuable customer to a reliable local specialist that he knows and can vouch for. And that's working in the legal and medical industry today. Our industry is moving there. They just haven't gotten there, but it it has to happen, and it'll work. You know, in your many years that you've been, uh, you, you've been teaching, you've been doing the work, you've been, you know, closely involved in the association world. I'm curious, what trends have you seen that you know kind of have run full cycle, and where are we headed uh, with respect to those trends? Well, the one I've seen a number of trends run, um, but the. One that I'd like to just share with you right now is the most powerful one that we have to pay attention to. That's the trend I called education and trust. Now, during the 60s, the consumer didn't trust letting just anyone in their homes. And they wouldn't take just anyone's word for touching their valuables. And so we had to become an expert to earn their ear. And I found that having a storefront help and being a dry cleaner was a plus. There's no two ways about it. And I found that recommendations from a home furnishings dealer was very strong. And uh, well, I developed an expert tag by offering to go into the different uh, furniture stores and putting on training sessions for their salespeople. With no cost, just did it as a, as a uh, service. And uh, we found that there was a whole lot of trust elements that I had to develop. Well, that all disappeared as our society became a throwaway, wasteful society with easy money to spend. Um, it was easy just to go in and, and uh, clean furniture because they'd only clean it once and throw it away. But now, since 2008, we're back to maybe even a tougher era than I had in the 60s of distrust and suspicion. So that's the big one, Joe. That's great. Yeah, that is uh, some great... Uh, advice for our listeners, Lee. Let's. Uh, we're going to go to what we call a roundup. We'll bring Dr. Wow on to uh, comment or ask a question, and then we'll go around one more time and ask questions. And we'll okay. we'll let you go, and we appreciate you uh, hanging in there with us. We'll be right back. Okay.
Dr. Dietrich Wild. We have you on the line. Yeah, hi there. Good uh, day, whatever it may be. Good, I'm afternoon. Good afternoon or wherever you're calling from. Dieter, speaking of uh, techies that are, um, you know, got a few gray hairs, you, you do pretty well yourself there. I have to give you credit. Um, you know, you keep up with modern technology, and uh, I think it's uh, been something that has helped you at least uh, somewhat in your career. Could you comment on that? Oh, certainly. I, you know, I, I haven't thrown in the towel yet. <clears throat> I have a little bit of a cough, which I caught yesterday after I cut the glass and I had a beer and it was getting cold outside. <laughs> I felt tickling. Anyway, no, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I did, I did well. I kind of keep up. I can't keep up with everything, of course. But, um, yeah, I found out that running your own business is, uh, it, sounds, it sounds a hell of a lot better than it is, <laughs> as we had learned already. But another thing that I know, and I don't even think you, uh, Joe, know that, uh, when Lee mentioned that he had to learn how to sew on buttons and do some sewing and stuff like that, and I surprise everybody, male and female, when I do sewing. I have a sewing machine. <laughs> I'm a class A machinist from Germany, and in my hometown was a company. They made sewing machines. And I went over there to make some money, and I learned how to repair sewing machines. And these were industrial sewing machines. So once you repair them, you have to try them out. You have to know what you are doing, <laughs> like all of that stuff. Wow. And after I learned all of that, I did sew a lot. I a sail shop. They made sails for sailboats. And, I mean, you talk about huge pieces of cloth. I was very, very good at that. And somebody comes over here and said, I need to hem this and I have to do this. I said, look, just give it to me. I said, how do you know how to do that? <laughs> but I did that 50 years ago. I learned that one in a hurry. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, I, I, have, you know, I know nothing. I mean, not know nothing. I know what a trichlorium, uh, sodium chloride is. And I need to use that one on the ceiling of my kitchen before I paint it. <laughs> but... Um, I think there were a, a bunch of valuable uh, comments being made on a, you know, how to survive in this world, and uh, it's not easy. It is not easy, and um, even if said, oh, I start my own business, and as we uh, Lee mentioned, you know, when you're a good employee, you know, you work nine to five. When you're the owner, you work, you know, seven to seven or something like that. But uh, yeah, overall, I liked very much what I was hearing. I can't. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about the cleaning solutions and whether dry foam or wet foam and extraction. I know nothing about that. In, uh, I know I need somebody to clean my carpet or replace the, the thing. So, but I think we learned quite a few things on on what can happen uh, to you when you start your business, and you got to be astute. You got to keep your eyes open, front and back, and see what is happening. Find a niche. And uh, there you go. Yeah, and I think you've also, by example, shown that um, not only, you know, just like Lee was talking about, you, you do a lot of educational programs. You go out and you teach, and that kind of feeds into your consulting business as well. So I think the two Absolutely. of you have, uh, You know, I, yeah, every time I get a job and uh, I see that I kind of was the first one to do some air sampling for whatever, 
Well, I have to talk to the employees. I tell them, I said, look, you know, I'm here not to screw you, not to, yeah, I'm here. I was hired to check at this and this and this and this, and that's what I'm doing. And the guy who pays me, he will give you the results and you can take a look at it. So there is an educational thing or an educational factor. Yeah, every every job that I have, and of course, uh, yeah, I teach with you. My this is only two weeks. No, no, it's three weeks from now, I guess. Yeah. Yes, sir. Summer camp. Uh, in Indian Lake, I'm looking forward to come out there again and uh, enjoy the fresh air and the mountains of uh, uh, Pennsylvania. And, uh, yeah, I will be there, what, for almost a, a week or something like this, yes, which is wonderful. And you know, yeah, I love teaching, and I love to work uh, with uh, students, particularly the good ones who listen and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and do what I tell them to do. <laughs> that is sometimes difficult. But, no, absolutely. I, 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 this is the other thing. Every time I teach, I learn something. Exactly. That is the. I'm not teaching everybody something, and I learn. I always learn something. Said, hey, sir, excuse me. I'm doing this and this and this. Have you he said no? I've never heard of that. Tell us. Oh, I said, that's interesting. So it is not really. I mean, it is give and take, and that is one of the reasons why I I, I love it uh, to do that. And I yeah, even after the class, said, hey, can we sit down and we talk a little bit after class? I said sure. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. And, um, yeah, again, I'm learning while I'm teaching, and I think that is great, and that's why I'm doing it. Well, Dieter, thanks as always for joining us. We appreciate it. And uh, let me get one more question in here from a listener uh, for Lee. And, uh, Lee, before I do, anything you wanted to add to what Dr. Wow just said here? No, I think he really summed it up beautifully. Thank you. I, I do, too. He's, he's uh, an interesting gentleman. Anybody wants to see us, uh, give us a call. We'll be up in uh, Indian Lake in three weeks. But I've got a text question for I, – I think this really should be to you and Cliff. Um, have you or anyone in our industry been approached by groups like the CDC or NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety or Health, or the National Institutes for Health for epidemiological study of – trade exposure to asbestos or mold or lead or anything like that? Cliff, you'll have to take that one. I don't know. Not not that I'm aware of. I've certainly not been, uh, you know, contacted by, by any of those uh, agencies. No, I know that you have gone after disasters and into areas to look at the uh, restoration process, but I think that's an area that uh, – Needs more study, obviously, and uh, it's a great question from the listener. Thank you, and uh, you have a great weekend, too. Uh, and we want to finish up with a very important question that uh, Cliff has for, for our guest today. Well, actually, I've, I've got a couple of comments. I, I think, first of all, I, I, the Lee's answer to the question on giving tips to listeners about bringing a son or daughter into the business, I, I think, was among the most profound segments that we have ever had. Uh, in 175 uh, yeah, I, uh, shows. I wish uh, you would I mean, have told me that 10 years ago, Lee. Uh, <laughs> maybe 15. <laughs> I mean, I think well, thank you. Excellent, excellent uh, advice there. And, you know, what's interesting is Lee uh, was the first trainer that I encountered, and, you know, I thank you for many positive changes uh, and inspiration, uh, you know, that you've given to me and, and made my life. 
you know, we thank you for joining us today. Uh, what I'd like to ask you is something I don't know if you ever thought about it, but uh, industry-wise, what would you like to be remembered for? Well, I don't think it's too complex. My whole lifelong focus has been on sharing valuable, needed information to the the small business. I call them the one to ten employee business because that's the little guys who so badly need affordable and useful information. And I just like to be known as someone had, had that has made it easier and better for them. That's why I've worked so hard with the IICRC, and that's why now uh, I see coming down the road, not too far away, something that I've wanted for many years, and that is distance learning being made available right at our grassroots level. And I want to see that happen while I'm still able to really be a part of it, and I know it's going to happen. Agreed. Absolutely. It's a... Uh... It's like a steamroller coming at us, Lee, and uh, we do really appreciate. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, we want to thank our, our special guest this week, Lee Pemberton. Uh, we will hope to have you back again sometime. And um, Lee, is there anything that you would like to add, any questions that we didn't ask? No, not really. I just want to thank you for the privilege of being able to talk from my heart today because, as you know, that's when I, when I can really express how I feel. And you've extended that, and I, I really hope that some of the listeners have found some valuable uh, tips in, uh, in this information. And if they would like to contact me, uh, they can certainly pick up my email address, or they can go online to Pembertons.com and check me out. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us, Lee. We really appreciate having you here on IAQ Radio. <laughs> Before we go, I want to make sure I also thank my co-host, the Z-Man. It's been fun. This of is course, a... a lot of fun today. Environmental Annie Koalecki, thanks for your help at the controls there. Also want to thank Glenn Fellman for helping us with the IE Connections What's News segment. Of course, Dr. Dietrich Wow, as always, for joining us and uh, helping us up with the roundup. Next week we do have, uh, let's see, we've got Lisa... Lisa Rogers is coming on next week. We're going to talk a little bit about that new ASTM mold uh, project they're working on there. It's kind of well, not new. It's been going on for a while, but I don't believe it's finalized yet. And we also have uh, numerous other interesting topics we'll be touching on with Lisa. So last but not least, we want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks, all of you, for hanging in there. We went a little over today, but we appreciate it. Hope it was worth your time. We'll see you next Friday for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 